0: To LA Talk Radio. Your real time that
1: you'll 24 hours of commercial free programming.
2: Room is brought to you today by Amazon. Log on to SeanTGreen.com and click the Amazon link to support The Green Room today. And now, live from Sherman Oaks, California, the host of The Green Room, Sean
0: Green! Alright everyone, welcome to the show. We're doing it live here in The Green Room, LA Talk Radio. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We do it live here every Thursday 8 o'clock. Feel free to give us a... Call at any point in the program on the LegalZoom self-help hotline, 323-203-0815. Make sure you check out LegalZoom.com for all your self-help legal needs. And uh, remember to use referral code GREEN to get the Green Room discount. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the program once again. We have an amazing show for you. We have an amazing show scheduled here, ready to go. Uh, later on the program, we have Sam Cutler. Um, he's going to be calling in. He's going to be Skyping in. Um... Actually, uh yeah, he's gonna be Skyping in. Sorry, I just I think he's uh Skyping in now. We were supposed to do a test of the line, but I think we're good. We should be fine. And uh <clears throat> my left hand man, Logan Lysico. Logan, thanks for coming on the program. How's it going? And uh, it's going great, man. It's going great. You know why it's going great, Logan? Because also in studio, right here, my main man, Ed Greer. Ed, thanks for coming in. Oh, sorry. Sorry.
3: <laughs> yeah, th- I, I did a really cool intro thing and then and then the sound wasn't on. So.
0: Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. You can you can uh you can try doing your intro thing again.
3: Alright, check it out. <laughs> Thanks for having me. That, that's what I did first.
0: There you go. I've known uh I've known Ed for a long time.
2: <laughs> and that sets the stage for the rest of the show.
0: <laughs> I've known uh Ed for a long time. Ed, when did we first meet? I know I met you from uh hanging out doing stand up. Uh, I think we met at the Haha uh, ha Cafe. Actually, yeah, the, on the open mic,
3: and uh, you and uh, Cornell, and uh, arguably Paul Danky at that time were uh, were open mic superstars. Oh,
0: okay. And I uh,
3: <laughs> I definitely looked up to you guys. I was like, hey, that clique of guys laugh at each other's jokes incessantly.
2: <laughs> and so they, what are they now? If they used to be
3: now they're just <laughs> regular superstars. I mean, they're all, they're all famous people in training. I, I love them all, and they're they're doing great stuff.
0: All right. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that, and uh, you're a very funny guy. I've always, I've always dug your stuff. Actually, hold on. This uh, Sam guy keeps calling in. I just, wanna, <laughs> I want to say, what's up?
2: This Sam
1: guy. Sam. Is this uh? Hi. G'day. Hey, Sammy. Sam. How's it going, man? Yeah, good, man. I just thought I'd call you and just, you know, make sure we've got the kind of communications together here.
0: Yeah, dude. It sounds great. I can't wait to have you on to. Uh To do the uh, interview. So looking forward to it, man. I'm I'm telling everyone about it. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you in like uh, 20 minutes or so.
1: Okay, so should I call you in exactly 20 minutes?
0: Yeah, that'd be perfect, man.
1: You got it, buddy. All right, thanks, man. Okay, man.
0: All right, take care, mate. all right, yeah, sorry about that. I just, uh
2: the guy's... <laughs> Whoa, Sean just turned on his English vernacular right there. Well, I threw in May, Thanks, because... Man. He's well, call- he's said man a lot, too.
0: He's calling in from Australia, and if you don't know Sam Cutler, he was a uh, tour manager for not only the Grateful Dead, but for the Rolling Stones. He was involved. Do you know
3: that, that is that is amazing like, to be the tour manager for those those two groups?
0: Yeah, like, and, and he wrote different... a book about it. So we're gonna make sure you guys stay tuned for that. And different types of
3: groups too. I'd like to talk to him about that. Like one seems like they break stuff and bang all the chicks, and one seems like they break stuff and bang all the chicks.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> In two different ways. <laughs> and
3: play some bongos, and then <laughs> you know. So that's cool.
0: Yeah. No, definitely looking forward to having them on. And. uh yeah, man.
3: So, I must say, has anybody talked about how struck they are? I mean, I know people have talked about how struck they are by such a young man being so down with the dead. Do, oh, do people give a crap me? about
0: that still? Well, yeah, you I'm are huge, so down with the dead. and It's, it's nuts. He's I'm a huge uh, huge Grateful Dead fan. And, yeah, I, I get that a lot. I Well, I mean, people generally call me old... All around. So I think the the fact that I'm also into the Grateful Dead kind of makes sense to them. You know, people are constantly going, "Oh, hey, Sean, you're an old soul. You're an old soul." Essentially, they're saying I'm, I look shitty for how how uh, young I am. <laughs> I, you know, I was the kid, at 16. I was I signed for a keg when I was 16. Didn't even have a fake ID. Like I just look like an old guy. I got the cantankerous attitude to go with it. I'm constantly being crotchety. I think it just it just I fit the old guy persona. So I, people when they hear, "Oh my god, he's in the Grateful Dead." Like that makes sense. If I came in and was like, "Guys, did you hear the new Fergie joint?" That would seem that that wouldn't seem to make sense
3: <laughs> to people. Well, well, well when you do sing uh Hillary Duff songs, that that's that's what makes it so incongruous with well, yeah, like your there old is, face.
0: There is a, there is a uh, there is a soft spot in my heart for super hardcore chick rock. Um, Kelly Clarkson, "Since You've Been Gone" is one of the best songs put out <laughs> wow. today. If you have not seen Sean
3: Green doing his karaoke rendition of "Since You've Been Gone," I you have missed
0: fucking rock that shit. A
3: major thing in life.
0: I air guitar. I do the hop step backwards into it. My uh, that was one jam. Um, <laughs> <What> recently, <hell? laughs> recently another jam that I had been going was uh. Miley Cyrus partying in the USA. I, I like the patriotism. I like the I like the poppy, crunchy beat. But I gotta say, this new gal, Katy Perry, and California girls, I'm behind it, man. I'm behind it 100%. Just because. Have you listen, Have you heard the song? It is. It's almost like someone's doing an imitation of a pop song. It's just like California girls, we got it on lock now, and it's. <laughs> They, she actually has a line. She actually has a line. We'll melt your popsicle. What a what a bizarre sexual euphemism to throw in there. Wow. Then you have Snoop Dogg coming in at the end just with the laziest – to call it rapping would be an insult to anything related to hip-hop. <laughs> he just comes in and like, Yo, you're California girl. <laughs> like he must have put in ten minutes at most in
3: the studio. Well, no, you know One thing I, I – I don't know. I'm going to get off on a rant here. But have you ever seen one of these pop songs, especially like a rap song? Where it's got like three or four guest stars, and the main person is pretty terrible. Yeah. I and mean, are like, they paid a lot of money for this song. I, I was watching TV the other day. Mac 10 has a song that has Lil Wayne, Rick Ross, and Jazzy Faye on it. And I'm like, Mac 10, you paid these dudes a lot of money. This beat is
0: whack as shit. You are, you're going to go triple wood and, and owe these dudes millions <laughs> yeah. of dollars. Yeah, he's going to have some like debt consolidation program. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. going to be getting some student loan thing. He's going to have to declare personal bankruptcy yeah, just to a, put out a single.
3: That's a small business loan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a whole business loan you're taking out. Now, do you think dudes. what
0: do you think the impetus is behind that? Do you think they're just like, oh, hey, if I get if I get a little easy on a track, that'll jump start my career. I don't care what I have to pay. I'll pay him 500 grand just to do this single. I'll do it, and then I'll Get famous, and then I can do lots of concerts where the real money is made. Now in tour and in music, the real money's made touring. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he thinks like, "Oh, hey, I'll just, I'll just get famous somehow off this one single, regardless."
3: I, I think, I think it's even more insidious than that. If it was a new artist doing that, I'd be like, "Okay, cool, I get that." But this is Mac Tan, He had his shot. This dude is the definition of having his shot. You know what I mean? Yeah, I
0: remember him didn't
3: he was big as shit. He came out with he came out with a ice cube and and dub C and they took over the world for like ten minutes and he didn't save his money and he got married to T Boz and started hitting her and stuff and now (laughs) he's on T V. On my TV, clocking it up with a whack ass verse that's even whacker than Lil Weezy's lazy cough syrup infested verses. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, wow, you are out lazying Lil Lil Wayne. All right, yeah. son. I mean, I'm not saying this guy who's hooked
0: lazy. on codeine. He's, you're somehow making him yeah. look like a workaholic. Yeah, but but you know, it's funny for a dude on codeine, he is. All those
3: mixtapes. <laughs> I couldn't do a mixtape if I was high on codeine all day. No man.
0: Yeah, you can just. It's so weird to listen to a guy being high and you know specifically what drugs he's on. You're like, all right, that's got to be some sort of opiates mixed with some codeine. Because he's just – it almost like slows down his tongue and just gives it – the. it's like he has a codeine accent. I don't know how to describe it.
3: (laughs) Dude, that that is you know, like like That's a defining, funny. yeah, codeine accent. i trying to find a defining lyrical characteristic through being.
0: Well, now up. now he must uh, he's got to get the pruno with the codeine. Now that he's uh, locked up, he's got to figure out some way Dude, to create
3: that. That being locked up, jazz as, as as a rapper, I wonder what happens to you in there. Like, I mean, you get respect from certain people, but then you get people going. I'm a real criminal. You are a poet. I'm gonna rape you up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or,
0: you know, I'm rape you up. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, cause you know? that's got to be, the, yeah, if you're a jailhouse rapist, I imagine Lil Wayne, that's a pretty awesome notch in your belt.
3: Yeah, and then he'll get a new tattoo, you
0: know. like Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> right in that crease in his neck with
3: a dreads Little Lil little,
0: little, little wheezy, uh, like yeah. a bottle of cough syrup and like a little teardrop coming little, out of his eye tattoo.
3: Lil wheezy's dignity, R.I.P. Across the back of his neck.
0: You're talking about Ice Cube. Are you talking about executive producer Ice Cube who came up with the great, amazing, original sitcom, Are We There Yet?
3: Oh man.
0: Now we've now we're gonna we're gonna get into the NBA playoffs, which I mean, almost goes hand in hand with Are We There Yet? Because TBS or TNT, they, they always find one show to yeah. just jam down your throat. Oh. Whether it's Frank Caliendo, uh now now it was or more recently it's been Are We There Yet? Which, the the it's just, you know, it's a super broad sitcom that looks really awful. But it is weird how far Ice Cube has come with his career. Going from literally be, co- projecting himself as one of the hardest dudes in entertainment to now being the, he's an executive producer, he's the comedic foible, he's like the funny next door neighbor. It's amazing how far he's come. And he's, you know, didn't really like. I feel like he hasn't really lost any sort of credibility in the rap game. Well, what well, do you the, think?
3: The one thing I'll say is this: either they don't know, don't show, or don't care about what's going on in the hood. <laughs> That's what I say. And what them. do you think?
0: What do you think uh, his his proposi- his position is? There? Oh man,
3: dude. Uh, yeah, well, that was a that was a quote from uh, uh Boys in the Hood uh, as he's uh, sipping his 40 at the end, and he, he walks into that dissolve that that, that, that that denotes that he will die. Um. <laughs> i think i you know what i think it is i think people really need to understand that there's only so long that you can act like you shoot people and then you go and you record raps right i think there's only so long that 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 facade you know it's it's almost like how we allow women to not be hookers and stuff until like we marry them and then we have those campfire talks where, you go, <laughs> where, where we're talking about all our partners and you go damn i married this whole bag this is terrible that's <laughs> that, like that's like yeah. the
0: chris rock bit where he goes uh never ask a woman how many how many guys she's been with cuz it's always too many yeah and, two two i guess that's how you was raised
3: exactly <laughs> so and with rappers it's like you got a degree what you know like the populace or like when rick ross when it was found out that rick ross worked as a correctional officer oh yeah after talking all that shit about cops you are the you are the cop that even the cops don't like yeah exactly because you're the one giving these fuckers all kind of weed and heroin and stuff (laughs) when they should be chilling the fuck out and thinking about their crimes and you're getting them high and blowing them and stuff
0: prison guards (laughs) prison (laughs) guards are (laughs) the worst if if there's any uh libel attorneys listening we don't we don't know for a fact that rick ross uh, as a prison guard gave fellatio in exchange for Thank <laughs> I don't know information. I don't know what. We don't know you're, you know, did. you're pretty desperate as a prison guard if you're giving them fellatio. It's like yeah. you're you're the one pulling down 37k with like great benefits. If anything, it should be working the other way around. Like, oh, <laughs> what is he? G-? All right, yeah. I'll, I'll give you fellatio. What do I get? Oh, a bag of Pruno. Awesome. Yeah, this is working out for me. Do they, do they sell it in bags? <laughs> yeah, I I, I'm I'm assuming I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but it's we funny. We're gonna
3: talk about the the playoffs with the with the with yeah the, yeah. Well, there it's there, funny. Here, real just. quick.
0: Um, I actually. The real Rick Ross, the real guy, he yeah. was in here, uh, I think, two or three weeks ago doing the Grand Theft Audio show, the show before on LA Talk Radio. Huh. And I actually met him in the lobby, and I was talking to him. I, d- I had no idea who he was, but I gave him my business card, and he was just like, yo, you do that comedy thing? All right, man, I'm going to holler at you. I'm like, all right. I gave him my business <laughs> card, so I-, I didn't, I didn't realize this was like... You know, you talked about Rick Ross, the correctional officer. That was a guy who ended up using the moniker of this street legend, Rick Ross, who was the guy that I met. But then I had to Google image for like 20 minutes to decide whether or not it was Rick Ross the rapper or Rick Ross the actual dude. Because they were both black and it confused you. Yes, right. As As a white man, my head was boggled. There can't be two black Rick Rosses. I can't process this.
2: It's it's not skinny, enough hard drive space. One that's fat space. and one that's skinny. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, they. <laughs> yeah, what well, they both. The Street kind of
0: Legend one it was actually really skinny, so that's how I figured it oh, out. Oh, yeah. I think it's from his years of uh, doing cocaine. He he. Rick Ross, the Street Legend, was known as you know being a huge connection in uh, bringing cocaine to L. A. So you're welcome, uh, Los Angeles. Speaking of Los Angeles, <laughs> <laughs> they are currently leading 79-64 in the NBA playoffs. I know. Uh, I know you're a big NBA fan. Ed, you're originally from Kansas City area. So who did you like in the NBA growing up? Who Who did you admire? Who'd you get into? I mean, well, I'm I'm definitely of that generation where you couldn't help
3: but be a Michael Jordan fan, or you were a super hater. Yeah. I, I remember. I remember being a kid. My friend wore a a Dominique Wilkins jersey and almost got beat up. <laughs> it was ridiculous. You know what I mean? And uh, so I started really liking Barkley mm-hmm. because of all this you know jump on jordan's nuts action that was happening so i really started liking barkley but everybody liked michael jordan because he was marketed to us fresh you know right, what i mean exactly but i mean he was dope as hell don't get me wrong but it would be like if somebody was really great and they had the best marketing team ever right
0: it was yeah that's it was, what it was. it was kind of the perfect storm of the nba needed a giant superstar at that time check media was kind of blowing up you got nike you got gatorade with this insane push it was, you know.
3: Marketable. I mean, he was just, he was just meg. He was so marketable. It was an in between size player. Imagine if Michael Jordan was Hakeem Olajuwon's height. All that stuff doesn't work. He's a human size player. He goes up against the big guys and dunks on them. If, if, David Robinson was never going to get his big. Right. Yeah. When as you watch him, the Kemi Matumbo, you
0: can't relate to that. You're not, you can't. Yeah. You're not like, oh, okay, I'm going to be like the Kemme Mutombo. Matumbo. But you can say, I'm going to be like Mike because the idea that you're a six foot six player is kind makes sense to you in your head yeah you're like okay because on the court he seemed of average height if not smaller
3: exactly he seemed like a little big man so i mean all, all that jazz to say uh i really did when i was uh towards the end i started looking at the that crummy lakers team that got beat up by the by chicago and i started looking at the lakers and i kind of started liking them because they were so crappy to be an elite team they were kind of a crappy elite team now what
0: year is this lakers like team? like maybe
3: the, the one where they lost to uh michael jordan in like oh, five okay. games because okay. sam perkins hits a three in the first game and just and then the rest of it is just domination by chicago i started looking at them and i looked at their team in those eight years after uh after magic left and it was like eddie jones and george lynch who i got into because he played for north carolina and uh sadale three and all these guys i said hey i like these guys so all that to say i like the lakers i like them a lot and i like them when they sucked so I get, right. I have the right. So you have to, some
0: street cred. Yeah, I have a, I have the right well, yeah, to like this Lakers. If you're, Lakers, in, a, if you're you know. in a market that doesn't have a team, yeah. I give you a lot more leeway as far as picking who your favorite team is. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the, I like this Yankees-esque
3: Lakers team <laughs> because I liked the crummy put together. Right, slap you were on board team. from early on. Okay, yeah.
0: I'll take that. So now, what's your, what's your take been on the NBA playoffs so far?
3: Um, I, I'm surprising by the, the startling startlingly
0: gutless performance by the Orlando Magic. Oh, I, right? yeah. I, I, I was I, amazed. I, I thought I... I've kind of, like I said earlier on, I don't know if anyone caught the the show when LeBron James lost it. I was a big LeBron James fan, and I got to say I lost a lot of respect for him just in his lack of heart in those last two games. And people say, oh, yeah, you're just jumping off the bandwagon. His teammate sucks, blah, blah, blah. No, I liked him because I felt that he played really hard. That's That uh, series before, the year before, when they lost to the Orlando Magic, that guy left everything on the court. Yeah. He gave it his entire you know he, he he drained the fuel tank but then this series you could tell he realized okay my teammate doesn't have we don't have the team to beat this Orlando team mm. and he, he mentally checked out and maybe the Delonte West stuff is true it seemed like something dude, happened dude, that caused tra- him oh, God. now you what did you call him no no we, we, what did I call him lebron james what you referred to him i thought you had a great analogy you go lebron james you mean the tin man Oh yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. I mean, he he's a tin man.
3: Uh, Dwight Howard is a tin man. You know who I I despise, but I read his stuff. Cons- uh, uh,
0: is a uh, Jason Whitlock. Jason Whitlock. He's Jason. a he's a writer for uh, the Kansas City's newspaper. I'm not sure which one, but he does sports. He's he's, yeah, he's very kind of controversial,
3: but yeah. well, smart he's, guy. He's half he's halfway uh he's halfway you know smart guy that's not conservative or liberal and half uncle tom you know is mean? this is this weird waffling thing but but the thing he said was uh people like Dwight Howard and people like LeBron James because they didn't go to college and because their whole lives were easy you know, in regards to uh, their, their development as, as athletes, they never run at these real hardcore championship games. They don't know how to perform really under pressure. And you see what happened. Dwight right. Howard's doing all kind of phone, He's doing all kind of uh, interviews with himself and in Jazz <laughs> instead of concentrating on getting some moves. You know. <laughs> And Orlando is really... Yeah, how
0: does he not learn some basic footwork to increase that offensive game?
3: That's the thing people don't understand. And I hope one of your viewers or, excuse me, listeners out here understands how genius I am for saying this. How are you going to have the big man who shot Jays all the time and had one move to come across the line and throw up a stupid hook shot? How are you going to have that guy training a guy who plays nothing like that and has none of those skill sets. Yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous You're talking about Patrick, Patrick Ewing
0: yeah. training Dwight Howard when it's a completely different skill set, completely different it's guys. Like,
3: we're gonna hire. We're, check it out. We're gonna hire Sasha Vujacic circa 2017. You know, after <laughs> after his career, we're gonna hire Sasha Vujacic to train our big man. You know, because right. because their skill sets are so similar. It's, yeah, it's
0: ridiculous. Now, why do you think Kobe had? He came straight from. High school, he seemingly had an, another easy road. He was a dominant player in high school. Came into the NBA. What do you think? Why do you think Kobe has been successful at being able to get those championships? Obviously, had the help of Shaq. Do you think that kind of was pivotal to him developing? I really do think that. Uh, that okay,
3: Kobe, the easy road part was coming in with Shaq. The the hard road part is, I bet you he had more pressure packed games under his belt when he came in as a rookie than Dwight Howard or LeBron have up to now him playing like pros when he was like 13 over there you know what i'm saying probably they're playing for vespas and stuff when he's 15 you know what i mean and he comes over here and plays you know uh, plays at a high level in in, in high school and like in, at a big conference you know chris dunham talks about playing against kobe bryant it's one of <laughs> it's one of his anecdotes about life he's just like man kobe
0: was just he was just unstoppable chris man. dunham's a uh, comedian we know white skinny guy who just yeah if you pictured him playing kobe <laughs> bryant you'd just be a Gut-busting laughter is the only and word exactly. to describe it.
3: Exactly, and, and you know, it, I just, I really do think that he had, he has more mental toughness. Uh, unless he's being interrogated by the Colorado police, <laughs> I think Kobe Bryant's mental toughness is astonishing. I really do. I think, I, like when you saw when he shot up all those air balls in Utah, who would have the balls when you're like he a second-year player to throw up a gang of air and balls?
0: And even people talk about all the, all the game-winning shots he makes. He's also missed a couple. He's missed two. Big game-winning shots in the playoffs. Both times, he got bailed out by his teammates. Uh, We actually have an interview here. This is Ron Artest after he knocked in the game-winning bucket. Uh, Craig Sager's interviewing him.
1: First of all, talk about redemption. What were you thinking when you put up that shot when you guys had a chance to run out the clock?
0: So essentially, the Lakers had a chance to run out the clock. Ron Artest decides, hey, why not put up a three anyway? (laughs) And he missed it, and then, you know, Kobe ended up airballing. Well, you know, he got the basketball, rebound. I mean,
2: at point in time where I shot 40% from the three. <laughs> I got to play, you know, and um, still try to get to the hole. You know, I, I hit shots before. They just didn't fall today, so that's the thing about the playoffs. You know, you keep playing, and you never know when that big game going to come.
0: I wish I was an athlete just to be able to speak in, uh, you know, Tiredies. Exactly. (sighs) To never have. uh, (sighs) To really never have anything to say, but somehow get away with doing an interview. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of interviews, we got Sam Cutler calling in. He's the author, um, of You Can't Always Get What You Want, My Life with the Rolling Stones, the Grateful Dead, and other wonderful reprobates. So let's uh bring Sam up on the show here. Sam. Yeah, man. Hey, what's going on? on? Want you early. Oh no, no, this is fine. Thanks for
1: calling in. Okay, no problem.
0: All right. Well, yeah, like I said, I just told people you're the author of You Can't Always Get What You Want, My Life with the Rolling Stones, The Grateful Dead, and Other Wonderful Reprobates. That's out today. You can uh, get it on Amazon or go to gimmecutler.com. I uh, I checked out the book. I actually got the iPhone app, which is you reading it, which I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed.
1: Great, man. Where did you listen to it? In bed, in the shower, <laughs> in was, the car. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Well, not the
0: shower. Uh, uh, mostly just yeah. hanging out in the garage with some, uh, okay. with some music in the background. I'm, I'm, a right. huge, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan and also a huge Rolling Stones fan. Uh, let's give people a little background information. How did you first get involved working in music? I know you're originally from England. How did you first get involved in managing bands and uh,
1: promoting events? Well, I used to play guitar, you know, when I was young Really young, you know, eight or nine I started guitar lessons And I soon realised I was never going to be, you know, an Eric Clapton And yeah, I love music You know, my family always, you know, sang folk songs And my mother was a trade union organiser So we always sang union songs, all that kind of stuff, you know And I just got interested in how the music business Well, it wasn't even a business when I first got involved in it, really But how it all worked, you know who decided what people would wear on stage, what songs they would sing, you know, so how, old how much you... tickets would cost, all that kind of technical stuff, you know.
0: So how, and that's just... Go on. Oh, sorry. So how old were you uh, when you put on your first major event, you would say?
1: Well, uh, let me think. I was about 20, 21, something like that, 22. I ran a folk uh, club originally. Uh, Yeah, I'd be about 20, 21, something like that. Long time ago.
0: (laughs) So now, how did you first get introduced to the Rolling Stones? Did you meet them? You met them over in England, correct?
1: Yeah, right. I, I, you know, I was living in London and I was I was doing shows in Hyde Park, which is a big kind of, you know, like Central Park in New York, right in the center of uh, London. So we did shows with the Pink Floyd, all kinds of different people. We did a show with uh, Eric Clapton's new band. Uh, which at that time was called Blind Faith, just after he'd broken up with Cream. Yeah. And that had about 150,000 people at it. You know, beautiful summer's day. It was wonderful. So describe uh,
0: no. the, describe the energy. You're in Hyde Park. There's 150,000 people there. You got Eric Clapton, Pink Floyd, The Stones going on.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, we've got Eric Clapton. Eric's band did a, a show there, you know, and, and Mick was at it, actually, with Marianne Faithful, and McCartney was there in the, in, you know, in the backstage area, beautiful day. The music wasn't that great, but everyone, you know, had a lovely time. <laughs> and, uh, and Mick and I had a chat. You know, he loved the idea of the Stones doing a concert in the park because they hadn't played for a while, and they just replaced Brian Jones with, um, with Mick Taylor. So we talked about that, and eventually we put a show on with the Stones, and half a million people came to that. That was beautiful, you know, very successful day. Again, the music wasn't that great, but nobody minded, you know. It's a bit like Woodstock, you know. A lot of the music at Woodstock wasn't that brilliant, yeah. But people, lo- you know, loved the event. You know what I mean? Right. In those days, in those days, you know, the event was just as important as the as the musicians and the artists. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's uh, a-
0: that's one of the stories I remember reading. I forget if uh which sorts, but that uh The Grateful Dead, they they said they, they thought they totally bombed at Woodstock. They didn't it was like yeah. a, a thunderstorm, they didn't have a great yeah. great show at all, but they still counted as a success just because they were a part of this and they felt that like, all right, this and it kind of took their weight off their shoulders in a sense that okay, we can blow the biggest gig of all time and we can still be a band and still be successful.
1: Now well, right. Right, I mean, the thing is about the Grateful Dead. Anyway, the Grateful Dead always were very clever, if you like, in in making sure that you know what the audience was almost as much a part of their show as they were.
0: Right, they always describe it as a communal experience between the Grateful Dead and you know the 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 performers and then the audience itself. So now, what brings what brings you over to America? Well, I'm in
1: Australia at the moment.
0: Oh no, no, I'm sorry, I mean. 1969, you
1: come over... Oh, right, yeah, 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 sorry. Well, yeah, I did that show with the Stones. The Stones loved it and all that, and then they were going to go on an American tour, and they suddenly realized they didn't have a personal tour manager, someone to actually look after them. You know, everything was organized, so I invited to do that. So I came on the 1969 tour of America, which was a you know, very important tour for the Rolling Stones. They hadn't played in America for almost four years, uh, they had a new member of the band in Mick Taylor. Um, you know, the music business had changed substantially whilst the Rolling Stones had been away, as it were, you know. It right. had gone from people screaming and yelling and, you know, charging the stage and the show lasting 15 minutes, if you were lucky, to people, <laughs> you know, sitting there getting high and wanting to be, you know, here's some really serious music. So that was a new thing for the Stones, you know. There were people who actually, you know, wanted to listen to them.
0: Right. Now, describe the, the Stones' mindset as a band when they came out to America. Were they, were they intimidated at all? Were they just totally confident that they say, like, all right, this is going to be a breeze, we're going to come over here, we're going to conquer America like we conquered England? Was there any
1: Were they scared at all? No, I don't think they were scared or apprehensive. I mean, the wonderful thing about the Rolling Stones is, you know, and the wonderful thing to me about all musicians, you've got to have a kind of quite a high level of self-belief. You know, you can't just go out on stage thinking, oh, God, I can't do this. Help. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to have the confidence to sell it. You've got to get out there, man. And, you know, if you want to be the greatest rock and roll band in the world, you've got to prove it, haven't you? You know what I mean? So it takes a a certain kind of amount of residual courage, you know? Yes. You are know, you may work or you may fall on your face. Flat on your face, but you, you know you've got to have that kind of basic drive and belief in yourself. I think the Rolling Stones love the challenge. I mean, one of the things I've always loved about the Rolling Stones is when they go on stage. You're never quite sure if it's absolutely going to work. You certainly were in those days weren't in those days sure it would work. But they're a wonderful band. You know, they work hard on getting a groove and capturing it, and you know, making sure that the music happens.
0: Yes. Now describe uh, how was the backstage scene like then? You know we've heard stories. Chaotic. <laughs> was it to was say there the least. was there a lot of decadence going back then? Was uh, cocaine was that introduced yet? Or how how was the oh,
1: drug use then? Yeah, it was the it was massively decadent.
0: So like describe you um, walk into Keith Richards' dressing room in 1969. You got to get him ready for a show. What's what's well, kind of his pregame in the same dressing room? Oh okay.
1: What was happening? Well, there'd be, you know, madness, you know what I mean? There'd be people from The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, all kinds of people hanging out trying to talk to the band, various, you know, vampire-looking ladies of uh, (laughs) dubious morals and general, uh, you know, um, partaking of all kinds of wonderful illicit and, uh, you know, we always had a problem, you know, because like ten minutes before the band went on, they always wanted the the dressing room closed so they could you know focus get their heads so together. getting everybody out of the dressing room was a major you know issue okay and people needless to say didn't want to leave you know right but exactly we used, to, we used to manage it with a kind of combination of subtle and not so subtle uh <laughs> moves we'd empty the dressing room and then everyone would kind of focus on the job at hand you know what i mean and then uh, hit the stage running
0: go out and knock it out all right, yeah. so now, okay, the 1969 tour is going well for the Rolling Stones. They are getting some criticism for high ticket prices and for kind of, you know, being the Rolling Stones, showing up late, doing whatever. Uh, describe the idea of, hey, we're going to put on a free concert. We're going to do Altmont. Can you take well, us through that? Well, what
1: happened was, see, they were being criticized by, you know, by Ralph Gleason, basically, about the ticket prices, but that was a bit of a. You know, it was it was a storm in a teacup. I mean, the Rolling Stones were charging 8 dollars 50, $8. fifty, top price for their um, their shows. You know, I mean, right. the Doors at the same time were charging seven fifty. Right, seems so, reasonable. You know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that you can get a ticket to the Doors or to the Rolling Stones for <laughs> eight fifty. Right, it yeah. seems like a bargain now. Would, yeah, and people would complain about it. You know what I mean? But they did, and uh, the Rolling Stones felt. That they, you know, maybe should put something back in, you know, uh, you know, give something back. And actually, there was a the concert, you know, wasn't the Rolling Stones free concert at Altamont? The the concert was put together by a combination of West Coast bands, basically the Grateful Dead, Santana, Jefferson Airplane, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, and uh, the, they wanted to play with the Rolling Stones. So the idea came up: let's do a concert in San Francisco. Well. You know, the guys that were involved were all beautiful musicians and lovely people, but they couldn't organize. Not great
0: (laughs) businessmen. Not great organizers.
1: We have an English. Are we all cool? Yeah, you there? Can
0: you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. We have an English saying they couldn't organize a piss-up in a brewery. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? They were lovely guys, but they didn't have a clue. And it just went from chaos to further chaos. You know, first it was going to be in Golden Gate Park. That didn't work. Then it was going to be at Sears Point Racetrack north of San Francisco. That didn't come about. And finally, I, I went out to um, to California to try and, you know, see what the hell was going on because it was a week from the date and we still didn't have a place to, to play. And that's when Altamont was uh, offered as an alternative site.
0: Yes, they offered up Altamont. the 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 guy who owned the raceway thought, "Oh, hey, this is a great publicity move. I'll yeah. offer up my racetrack." Yeah. Little did he know what would happen. Basically, they, from all accounts, he set up, try to get the show going. There's general chaos throughout the entire show. Um, Indeed, Hells Angels. They've Now, describe the Hells Angels' involvement. There's kind of some murkiness as to what exactly they were supposed to do. It it sounds like you had asked them, hey, just make sure no one jumps on stage or no one messes with the amps. We'll give you a ton of beer. That seemed to kind of be the the general idea. Well, that's what
1: happened before, you know, at lots of concerts in San Francisco. The problem was at Altamont, the basic reason why it went wrong apart from the fact that it was in a completely inappropriate place to do, do a rock and roll show, right? Right. Uh, was that the stage was like less than a meter high. So it came between your knee and your groin was the height of the stage.
0: Oh, okay. So no one Imagine. in the back could see, and then they ended up pushing forward. And Imagine that kinda...
1: people were pushing forward. People could just step up onto the stage. It was ridiculous, you know? Yeah. And you put the Rolling Stones and... Anybody else on a stage like that in the middle of 350,000 people, it's a recipe for disaster. Yes. Well, we have another saying in England, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Right. The only people there who were kind of vaguely organized were the Hell's Angels. <laughs> there were a lot of people there that were beating on the crowd and the crowd was drunk and on bad acid. <laughs> there was lots of bad acid going around. And it was just a generally... People were really messed up, man. You know what I mean? It it wasn't a Woodstock by any stroke of the imagination. It's almost kind of
0: Woodstock gone wrong. Someone ended up in the crowd trying to aim a gun on stage. He ended up getting stabbed. Mayhem kind of ensued. Afterwards you kind of ended up seemingly becoming the fall guy. The Rolling Stones went back to England. Describe, were you disappointed at the Rolling Stones? Did you want them to stand up for you? What was your position being the manager? Well, I
1: mean, man, I understood the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones had other dates to do in Europe. My position was that I felt somebody from the Rolling Stones should be there to, you know, to deal with the criticism, you know, to deal with all the problems, you know. I mean, in life, man... You know, not every show you do is perfect, is it?
0: Right. I know that from doing you know? stand up.
1: <laughs> and if you do a show you do a show that's a complete and utter catastrophe, you know Right. Take works. some responsibility for it. Yeah, you have gotta stand up and deal with that. You know, we're all too, we're always love you know, we love to stand there and go, Yeah, weren't we fabulous and you know <laughs> what I mean, accept the applause. You also have to accept people saying this was a disaster, you know what I mean, and you played a part in it. So I stayed behind, basically, to deal with the shit, to put it bluntly. Excuse my French. Right. No, that's and, fine. You know what I mean? So I did that. You but know? now, so didn't that,
0: go- that kind of ended up being an opportunity for you in that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry Garcia and his uh, girlfriend at the time, Mountain Girl, ended up kind of taking you into their place, letting you crash there, and is that when you developed more of a – more of a relationship with uh, Jerry Garcia well, and the Grateful yeah, Dead?
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think Garcia felt some kind of moral responsibility because the whole thing was organized out of the Grateful Dead's office. Right, and the Grateful you
0: know? Dead didn't even end up going on that night. They, they, they
1: her- didn't play. They just saw what a mess it was and went, no way, we're going to play.
0: Right. Do you think uh, Do you think
1: that would have changed the events if they would have played? Obviously. Well, I don't know, man. That's like counterfactual history, isn't right, it? It's right, right. Like, it's like asking... Would the Second World War have happened if Hitler was a woman? <laughs> probably. It probably would have happened right. sooner. Who well, we knows? No. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. But, you yeah, know, sure. rightly or wrongly, they decided not to play. Afterwards, you know, Jerry was very kind to me. I mean, he also had his own kind of problems. You know, the Grateful Dead had just been ripped off by their then manager, who was a Christian minister, right, who'd there. absconded with three or $400,000 and the girl from the local bank. You know, he ran off. Uh, So the Grateful Dead were massively in debt. And Garcia was very interested in, you know, how the Rolling Stones organized their setup. We had many long night, late night talks about that, you know, how how they made decisions, how they organized tours, the whole thing. And uh, Jerry eventually asked me, you know, we also had some very, you know, beautiful times together because it happened that my my mother was a trade union organiser, right? Right. And Garcia's grandmother was also a trade union organiser for the Laundry Workers' Union in San Francisco. Okay. And the amazing thing was that my grandmother's name was Tilly, and so was Garcia's grandmother's name, Tilly. Yeah, small world. So we, yeah, we had some kind of really quite, you know, emotional kind of talks about our childhood and, and shared some stuff there, you know. And yeah, then it cool. just came down to, well, Garcia... You know, had all kinds of managers, good and bad, as it were, over the years. And he decided that the best thing for The Grateful Dead would be to have three managers all kind of looking at one another, you know, so that nobody could rip them off or whatever. So anyway, I I, uh, became their tour manager. And basically, they always, The Grateful Dead always earned 95 percent of their income, basically, from, uh, you know, live appearances. They never sold that many records.
0: Right, yeah, so, it, in, it in those all, days,
1: you know. It was all so,
0: doing live music.
1: Yeah, live music, and so that's where the income stream came from. And I was given the job of like, you know, making sure that when we did tours that we actually came home with some money at the end of the tours, which hitherto had never happened. Right. The great dad always went off on tour and came back with nothing. Now what when kind they'd of go, what go kind out of, on tour again? Where would so all the, the-
0: Oh, sorry. Where would uh, where would all the money end up going? I know they invested a lot in the. Well, wall- no, nobody
1: knew. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean. That was the problem. There was never any proper accounting kept. You know, and basically, <coughs> excuse me. I talked I talked to one of their previous tour managers and said to him, "Well, you know, how did you disperse money?" And he said, "Well, you know, people would come and talk to me and they, you know, give me a rap." And dependent on their rap, I'd give them some money for what they wanted. You know? So I said, what, you know, the better the rap, the more money you got. <laughs> yeah, basically. No, so if you had a lousy rap, you didn't get much money. If you had a great rap, you got more. But, the, the, the and, you know, the, the actual thing was that there was no real accountancy systems in place. You know, nobody signed for things and all that. So yeah. I just, you know, instigated a kind of, a slightly different regime in the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead had to change the way they were touring. They had more to be a bit more line. Now, uh, fo- hey, focused, you know. Yes. And they just had to get it together.
0: Right. Now, Sam, uh, I got a call here coming in real quick, if you wouldn't mind, sure. uh, mind taking that. Caller,
1: no, no
0: caller, you're on the air. Caller. Caller, speak to us. Caller, you're on the air with Sam Cutler. Oh, okay, sorry about that, uh, Sam. Uh, never mind, they okay. hung up. But um, it was a dead I, caller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Someone calling. Okay. It was Jerry calling from beyond the grave. That's didn't it, didn't want it. you to. Didn't want you airing all his
1: dirt. So now. Just... Hi, Jerry. No, I never do. I mean, one of the <laughs> things about my book is which you know goes in great detail about the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and other people, including Hendrix and and Janice and everything. I'm not a believer in. Uh, you know, idle horrible gossip or chit chat. I tried to write it for people who actually like you, man, somebody, you know, people who love the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead, who right. want to know the real deal, not not rubbish, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, and I I appreciate it. it's a it's a great read. Um I'm also fascinated. I just, you know, I'm a younger guy. I I'd never even heard of The Festival Express. I just got right. uh the DVD uh, not too long ago and watched it and it was fascinating. For those of you yeah. who aren't familiar with it, The Festival Express was a, a basically a tour of canada in 1970 they got together some great bands janice joplin the band the grateful dead and they got a it sounded like just a bunch of jugs of whiskey and went from town to town in a train playing different shows now i know sam you are a part of that describe that scene that must have been awesome
1: well, it was, you know, one, well, the Grateful Dead have never been an alcohol band, as it were, right? Right, so that's see, what they
0: said, it was kind of weird. Normally they were, you know, a bunch of acid heads, and then, okay, we'll try whiskey for the first time. That's what it sounded right. like.
1: Right. Yeah, well, what happened in the end, of course, it was whiskey and acid, so that was an interesting <laughs> combination. That's a good mix. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Buddy Guy was on that tour, Elephant's Memory, Ian and Sylvia, all kinds of people, right? It was an amazing, amazing thing, man. A private train going across Canada, stopping at various sites and playing. So it was uh, one huge party, epic yeah. party. It's definitely worth it checking out.
0: Now, Sam, real quick, you got to work with uh, some, you know, in my mind, two of the greatest rock and roll bands of time, the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead. They yeah. kind of have two different approaches, it seems, to music and business. What do you think is the biggest difference between the two?
1: Well, I mean, here's here's where it's at. The Rolling Stones, uh, in a word, the Rolling Stones competitive, the Grateful Dead cooperative. The Rolling Stones, you know, happy to have number one records, talk to the media, very, very kind of uh, status conscious, you know what I mean, happy to be called the greatest rock and roll band in the world and all that. Right. And then on the other side of the coin, that's like the competitive aspect, you know, on the other side, and, you know, take the money and run and put it in Switzerland. On yeah, the other exactly. side of the coin, these good old boys from San Francisco who never wanted to have their photo taken, didn't want to talk to the press, didn't care about the whole hoopla of the music business, didn't care about the money, just wanted to play, you know? And at the same time, have a family of 80-odd people who, you know, survived on the money that was made from playing live shows. Yep. So two, they kept two a bunch wildly of different ends of the music business spectrum.
0: Well, that's fascinating, Sam. And uh, I appreciate you for coming on the show. We gotta we gotta wrap things up, but I'm I'm urging uh, all the listeners to go to gimmecutler.com and and check out your book there, and, and maybe get the iPhone app. I'm gonna put a link up to my site, and I I really appreciate your time, Sam.
1: Hey man, lovely, lovely to talk to everyone in L.A. I was just there. Uh God bless America. I still love America. And, uh, yeah. Well, thanks, man. If you're
0: next time you're out here, uh, shoot me an email. We'll uh, get a beer and talk more Stones and Dead. Appreciate
1: it, man. Okay, man. Lovely talking to you. All right. Take care, Sam. Oh, wow. All
0: right. We're back. That was fantastic. Well, sorry sorry, uh, to kind of um, not work you guys in more. It's tough. You know the guys on Skype in Australia. You can't really. Yeah, I I envisioned going. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm Matt
3: mate. I'm I'm an American comedian, and I have a bunch <laughs> of asinine hip hop questions for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. i you know, it's just like a dude. Stop it. Stop trying to talk like me. What are you doing? So i was just chill, gonna chill out.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I don't know. I I found that fascinating. Just yeah. to, just knowing a guy that knows the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones. eh? well, it just sounded like the Grateful Dead were were, were
3: the MC Hammer of their time. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. In regards to having like a an- <laughs> so
3: Just (laughs) constantly (laughs) sieve, just just a a financial sieve made of dudes. Right,
0: they made like no good business choices. It was just, you know, that's essentially what, what kind of hurt them towards the end when Jerry Garcia had all these health problems. He wanted to take time off and kind of just like, all right, guys, I want to chill. I'm, you know, not in great health. And then he would eventually rally because, you know, you get 80 full-time employees. They need the money coming in. They need to be able to pay their they need health insurance because they got kids and As stuff well, like that. My
3: and, entourage remains small.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you keep it low, even keeled, not get not too crazy. Well, before, uh looks like, uh, let's see, I think the Lakers ended up winning here. So, now, uh, you said you hadn't heard this. I feel I, I would be remiss. We were talking about Ron Artest earlier before Sam called in. I would be remiss not any you talk about Ron Artest. The first thing comes to my mind is Ron Artest's <laughs> His foray into rap music. Now, Ed, you haven't heard this song? I
3: I, ha- I have denied myself this,
0: Jim. Well, enjoy.
2: Yo, yo. <laughs> Want some real shit? Michael, Michael, you my
3: nigga.
0: <laughs> this is about Michael Jackson, of course.
3: Yeah, yo. I know a dog to cry for you, my dude.
2: <laughs> No I'm um, b singer really ever
0: make me cry, <laughs> <laughs> make me wanna meet yeah. you, touch Yo. your hand, uh. you are not my Yeah, I cry for Mike, I cry for Mike, mic, mic, mic. Mike, my nigga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even. <laughs> How awesome is this? Oh, wow, Alright, so you get you kinda of get where it's going, but I oh, I I I had oh, to play that for you. I
3: know what the cry for you. I know what the cry for you, Mike.
0: <laughs> oh man, test is great. He's he he used to seem I forget, someone on the Dan Patrick show was talking about this, and I I think it's a great comparison. He used to kind of be seen as like, all right, Ron Artest, he's crazy thug Ron. And now since he's gone to L.A. and kind of gotten involved in Hollywood, now he's crazy In a jovial, fun sort of way, a wacky crazy.
3: But he was always emo. That was the thing. That was the thing that that (laughs) killed me. He was emo before emo was cool. He was always emotional. Like, uh, a lot of players get hit with some water. They're like, damn, son, I got to go to the showers early and wash this water off. You know, but he jumps up on some stuff and starts punching some random caucasoid in the face. You know what I'm saying? He's just like, hey, hey, they're white. They have a cup punch. You know? And Steven Jackson and Jermaine O'Neal threw some punches that MMA dudes would envy. They wow. were destroying dudes. Wow! <laughs> when
0: when that fan came down and they just—I uh, forget who who was that that hit the fan? Was that Jermaine O'Neal? I think well, one of them. A fan
3: rolled up running on the court and Jermaine O'Neal laid one out, and then yeah, Stephen oh. Jackson did a, a long straight arm, like six foot seven guy, right to some guy in in the in the in the
0: stands. It was nuts. Man. It was amazing. I remember that and was thinking like, wow, maybe I'll maybe I'll we'll get back into basketball. This is pretty cool sport compared to soccer. I don't know if you saw this video, but there was a video just this week of Ronaldo, the soccer player. You know, which he's, uh, which one is that though? I I forget. He I think he's on uh, Brazil's team or something like that. I I try not to follow soccer. I I hate I, soccer. I I despise. I do everything I can to get soccer out of my mind. And look, if I wanted to see guys running around in short shorts, I'd I'd go to the West Hollywood 24-hour fitness. All right. Well, my, my
3: friend Derek always says uh, uh, the best way to improve uh, NASCAR is ramps. And one of the best ways to improve soccer would be landmines, so, yeah, exactly. I, I, I,
0: so I, I need you need some it. i don't know i'm not a huge I'm not a huge fan of soccer, but Ronaldo is out there doing his thing. a crazy fan comes up, and instead of punching the fan in the face or whatever, this guy he lets a guy run up and kiss him on the cheek. It was very very bizarre and just and just proved what I'd always thought about soccer and soccer fans <laughs> well no like, europe europeans are are both genteel and
3: savage. In equal measure, like like they still like kind of attack like some of the black players and stuff, <laughs> yeah. And say racist stuff to them with with impunity, and yet they kiss each other on the cheek, and you
0: know <laughs> they somehow they somehow are able to uh, balance that. Well, sorry to say, but we got to wrap things up. Logan, uh, you want to do a haiku real quick? So, Absolutely. I don't have I'm, I don't have your haiku music, so you will have to do a solo haiku. Oh, what?
2: Oh, I sorry. love this. Although I mean, if you thing. can.
0: All right, hold on. Let me look right. for it. I
2: may need some Ed Greer music
3: if we can't <laughs> find it. I am fat. I trained myself not to beatbox as a child, so I would I would never have to do the beatbox <laughs>
2: duty. You just make noises like that. Okay. <laughs> Sam Cutler, <laughs> Ed Greer, <laughs> Rolling Stones, and Grateful Dead. Ron Artess can't rap.
0: There you go. That'll do it. Ed, where awesome. can people catch you?
3: Uh, they can catch me all over town, uh, improv, comedy okay. store, places like that. Look Just them up to, on check, Facebook. Uh, Support destruction.com for my full schedule.
0: Okay, there you go. Thanks you thank you everyone for tuning in to the green room every Thursday, eight o'clock, LA Talk Radio. <laughs>
2: Thanks for listening to The Green Room. Don't forget to check out SeanTGreen.com and click the iTunes link to subscribe today.